this week on Forward. People often think of entrepreneurs as big risk takers, and but they aren't. They, they, they try to measure, like, what's a risk I can afford to take and, and invest in that. The idea that you can be engaged in something that is going to try to at least control your world and maybe have an impact on the broader world is a, is a very comforting and, and empowering feeling for young people. You know what I find to be the antidote for anxiety and depression? Uh, is action and agency. I can't tell you how many conversations I have when I say, gosh, I'm a social moderate and an economic conservative, and everyone says, would you please start a party that's for those folks because I've never felt like I had a home. And I hope that that's at least partially what we're doing. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast the very newest member of the National Board of Forward, former Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts and President of Babson College, Carrie Healy. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. I am so pumped to have you as a colleague. You and I met, gosh, now it must be a, a few years ago, out west, uh, and I was blown away by you. You're, you were so clearly principled, independent, patriotic. You are looking at ways to move the country forward. Uh, you're now uh, on the board of the Council for Responsible Social Media, I believe, yes. and that's something that, in my mind, uh, is really high on the priority list um, and should be nonpartisan. So I guess we'll lead off with that. What the heck made you say yes to joining Forward, which I, I'm super excited about? Well, I guess, Andrew, I've been looking for a home maybe my whole life politically. You know, so, so this is uh, one of these moments where I feel that I, I have the opportunity to be in on the ground floor with you and, and, and Governor Whitman uh, to build something that will really be valuable for the next generation of Americans, which is to give people the opportunity uh, to express the full range of political uh, beliefs and expressions and, and to work constructively in politics, which is something I've always wanted to do. I had the opportunity to do that in Massachusetts in, an, in what is probably a pretty unique environment where Republicans and, and Democrats work very closely together uh, for the good of the people. And, um, and I'd love to see that across the country. And, and I'd love that to, to give other people that opportunity. Amen. So you started out as a high school student in Florida. Um, do you still spend a lot of time in Florida? Where do you hang your hat nowadays? You know, I don't. I actually have ended up back in Massachusetts. I just spent uh, about three and a half years down in Washington, D.C., working with the Milken Institute, helping them sort out how to found something called the Center for Advancing the American Dream. And that was a great experience because it really gave me the opportunity to dive deeply into why people are so concerned about the future of America, why they do or do not believe that the American dream exists now or whether it ever existed for all people, and, and also what kinds of things we might be able to do to increase access to the American dream. And so that's that. I, I'm glad I spent some time in Washington, but I don't think the answers are actually in Washington. I think the answers are out around the country, and that was something that really made me want to get back to Massachusetts and reimmerse myself uh, in that culture, which is so conducive to um, to hearing different points of view and and a, and a very wonderful uh, awareness of our nation's history and the value of that history to our values. Well, I want to dig into the Center for Advancing the American Dream and what you learned uh, and figured out 
um, over the last several years, because you were just starting that when you and I met out west. Um, but first, let's retrace your steps a little bit, because people, are, I think, always are interested yeah. in origin stories. So you, uh, you went to school in New England, um, and then you got an advanced degree, I want to say, in Europe, uh, came back, and you wound up in politics relatively early in your career. You did some policy research and work, and then you ran uh, for, uh, I, I want to say, a state rep seat. Uh, and you were still relatively young. Did you know you always wanted to get into politics? What was that first race like? So I, I did. I grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida. I went to public schools, um, and I was interested in politics. I went up to the state house in Tallahassee and was a, a page uh, in the in the Florida legislature back in the time when it was virtually all male, and they were having fist fights in the hallways, and it was just a very rough and tumble, crazy environment. But I was interested in it because that's where policy was being made. And, and, and I just I found it fascinating. And so I didn't get involved with politics until I was almost 37 years old. But I was a I was an observer. I, I was a political science major. I, I studied uh, at Trinity College Dublin, as you mentioned, and studied law and politics and was always very interested in how law interacted with our policies and, and what kind of society that makes and so when I had the opportunity um, to, to begin to go into politics when I was about 37, 38 years old, I had a really strong basis of, of things that I wanted to do. I'd been working for 10 years for the U.S. Department of Justice on criminal justice issues. And as, as you well know, uh, criminal justice issues arise out of social issues. So I was looking at things like drug abuse or gang violence or child abuse and neglect or domestic violence. And so often when you really dig down in those issues, what you find is addiction, you find homelessness, you find a history of violence within someone's family, you find people who dropped out of uh, high school and, and really had very few options as they were moving forward. And so after about 10 years of doing that criminal justice research and you know publishing papers and white papers and going to conferences that nobody attends, I realized that if I were actually going to do anything about this, if I actually wanted to see change in the issues that I had at that time become very passionate around, I needed to run for office. And my idea was, even if I didn't win, which I certainly didn't, I lost twice um, for the legislature, um, I, I would have an, a platform to talk about it. And I think that that's something wonderful that everyone should feel about politics, is that politics and our, our political discussion provides a platform for you to talk about things you care about. And at that time, I really cared about, uh, I cared about foster children, I cared about domestic violence, I cared about drug and gang violence, and, I, and, the, and the impact on communities that that was having. And so I thought, look, I'm going to run for office, I'm probably going to lose, I'm, I'm running as a Republican in an all-democratic state, uh, so I can kind of see the writing on the wall there, um, but at least I'm going to have a chance to talk about things I care about. And, and that's how I started that process in my late 30s. Well, you impressed a lot of people. You wound up uh, in a leadership position in Massachusetts and then got knighted to be Mitt Romney's lieutenant governor, uh, which I, I dare say someone I, I uh, talked to someone about you in this interview, and they said, wow, Mitt Romney, um, history seems to be very, very kind to Mitt Romney <laughs> in, in, in terms of uh, both national leadership but also what he did in Massachusetts. Um, and that that must have been uh, a really 
productive feeling time for you and Mitt. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience. And by the way, um, uh, Senator Romney is just a genuinely good person. Uh, I know a lot of times people are a little bit cynical about someone who seems maybe a little bit too good to be true. Uh, but he is honestly a very good person every single day of the week and, and loves his family and loves his country and is willing to make you know, very difficult decisions for which he's been harshly criticized by a number of people in order to stand up for principle. So I, I have nothing but the greatest admiration for him, and it was a great experience working with him. It, it is funny where uh, I feel like Mitt now has morphed into this wholesome grandfather figure for a lot of people, which I'm sure he is both wholesome and a grandfather. <laughs> well, yeah, do, do I believe at least 25, maybe 26 grandchildren? So I think the answer is that's exactly who he is. Yes. Um, so you then ran for governor as a Republican in a very blue state. Um, and uh, that didn't go your way. Uh, I feel like this movement forward in many ways is tailor-made for someone like you because you strike me as reasonable, policy-oriented, moderate, blue state Republican, honestly. <laughs> I don't know if that's a fair description. Well, that's, well, that's right. I mean, there, there is a whole category of, of Republicans in the Northeast. And when Governor Romney and I were in office together, um, there, there were uh, Republican governors throughout the, the Northeast, actually, in almost every state. And, and these are folks who are generally described as being socially moderate and, and economically conservative. And although it's not necessary for state-level policies, uh, I would also say uh, that I personally am a foreign policy conservative as well. I believe that America should lead, that it's our obligation to lead, but that we shouldn't lead with force. We should leave, lead with moral character and principle, and that we need to lead with a strong economy. And that strong economy begins at home. So, so those those are the principles that I always felt comfortable with. It's it, these are principles that a number of people in the Northeast feel comfortable with. I can't tell you how many conversations I have when I say, "Gosh, I'm a social moderate and an economic conservative," and everyone says, "Would you please start a party that's for those folks?" Because I've never felt like I had a home, and I hope that that's at least partially what we're doing. Yeah, very very much so. You know, Chris Sununu, who is a Republican. Blue state, gov oh, sorry, I mean, purplish state, but he's a Republican. He's a moderate Republican. He, he's like the, the he's yep. top of mind for me when you think about these Northeastern. Absolutely part of that model. Yeah, very yes. much so. And he's stepping down not to run again, um, which in some ways is very disappointing. It seems like that that breed of Republican leader is uh, in, dan in danger of disappearing. Well, I think it's very hard for uh, individuals like that right now to get even the nomination of their party in uh, those blue states, uh, because we have, as, as everyone has seen, uh, see the Republican Party become quite polarized and moderates have been forced out. You know, we have seen even a governor as wildly popular as Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, who was, you know, reelected with 70 percent of the vote uh, in, a, in a state where Republicans actually comprised fewer than 10 percent of the voters. And he was a Republican and he was being reelected and his, his popularity ratings were off the chart. But he was in doubt of whether or not he was actually going to be able to win his own convention. Uh, because the, the party had shrunk so much and become so extreme 
that they didn't, they no longer even approved of him and approved of what he was doing within the state. So people like that should be kept in politics, obviously, because they're doing a good job and people like them. But the party, the, our current party structure doesn't allow for it. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, that, that is the problem, isn't it? I mean, right now you have party structures that are distorting what people want, what most Americans want. Uh, and unfortunately, it's corrupting incentives for a lot of political figures or candidates. I talked to some folks this week, uh, and they said uh, up front, they were like, look, I would never run in this environment, and most of the, the good people I know wouldn't run. Uh, it, it's super sad. So you became the first woman president at Babson College, which is an institution I respect and admire a great deal. It's one of the most entrepreneurial schools in the country, avowedly so. I would love to hear about your experience there, particularly with young people uh, and uh, and what their sense of the future is, what their sense of uh, their own uh, trajectory and path uh, look like. Uh, you were president of Babson for how many years? Uh, for six years, from 2013 to 2019, up to their centennial. That's a long time, and you accomplished a, a great deal there. It's getting to be more the typical um, length of time for a college president. College presidents used to stay forever, but now it's more like six to seven years. Um, and, and I have to say, I'm so pleased that I went to Babson in particular because of their focus on entrepreneurship. Uh, what I got to see is that, you know, so many young people uh, feel disempowered. You know, they, they feel that they're worried about the job market they're going into. They're worried about how jobs of the future are going to be different than the ones they have. They're worried whether or not they should be spending as much money as they are to get the college education yep. that they are. And yet when you're at a college like Babson, where, you know, 99% of the, the graduates have a good paying job within six months of graduation, there's no sense of return on investment not being there. You know, people know that they're going to get value for their money in that environment. And 
right now, I think there are so many questions about the overall value of higher education and whether people ought to be going into debt to get you know, that, that kind of credential, that we really need to refocus on things like entrepreneurship that, that give people, first of all, the power to create their own job, right? They don't have to wait yep. around for someone else to provide an opportunity to them, but they can use their own initiative, their own talents, uh, and to work with others uh, who have a similar entrepreneurial uh, mentality. But also, those are job creators, right? Those are the people who are not just going to take a job created by somebody else. They're going to create not only a job for themselves, but they're going to create jobs for other people too. And, and they are seeing problems, and they're creating solutions for those problems that are going to be economically advantageous to their communities and their country. So I loved working with those kids, and they are the most uh, energized, optimistic, uh, international group of students that you'll find. Yeah, I, I have a number of friends from Babson, but two come to mind. Um, one started a business, um, a rock climbing gym business, and then the other became a very senior executive at L'Oreal Cosmetics. And as a result, I just think of Babson folks as really smart, practical uh, get stuff done, um, uh, and uh, I can see you as a uh, president who's very happy to reinforce that that kind of culture. So uh, I get asked all the time by parents uh, advice for young people. Uh, you're a parent yourself, though your kids are probably um, past college and whatnot. They're around thirty. They're around thirty. Yeah. yeah. So when when parents ask you for advice about their kids, uh, or when even they, they did when you were president of Babson. What did you tell them? Well, one of the things that I always emphasize to parents because they get so nervous around this notion of choosing a college and then they worry that if they don't choose the right college that their, their child's life will be ruined or if they don't get into this specific elite college that the life, their life is over is just that there are so many wonderful paths to take. And, and there are so many wonderful institutions out there. And so it's really incumbent on parents right now and students. I would prefer the student to do the research to figure out, you know, what is the right fit and match for that particular student and their ambitions and their talents and their learning style. It, it, there isn't a right place for everyone. Not everyone should go to Harvard, even if they could. And, and it's just not it, it, opening up admissions to at least elite institutions isn't the, the necessary answer for all of this. It's telling everyone you don't have to go to elite institutions uh, to maybe to get to where you want to go. Really think hard about what kind of life you want to live, where you want to live it, what region, what you want to do, and then find the, the place that specializes in what you really love and what you enjoy. Um, that's, that's the trick. That's the hard part. Find the right fit. It's not about looking at the rankings. Yeah. It's about finding the right fit. It's no, it's not. Although I think return on investment is good. I think you need to look, if you were going to look at a ranking, I would look at return on investment because, you know, you don't to want to get <laughs> a, a college education that isn't, no, but, you know, increasingly they are starting to come out with different measures of return on investment. Money, Man Money Magazine is doing it. Um, even some of the, the more traditional U.S. News and World Reports are trying to take a stab at it. But um, looking at the alumni is probably the best measure, just as you were saying, hey, I keep bumping into Babson graduates who are doing fun things and interesting things with their lives. I think that's always a, a very good way to figure out if that's a good place for you to go. All right. So I have a, a big question for you, which is teaching entrepreneurship. So I, I ran an entrepreneurship organization that I started for six years. So I have a sense as to how we went about it. 
Um, but one joke I used to tell, so this is a true fact, that uh, even as the number of entrepreneurship programs on college campuses have multiplied, the rates of business formation among college-age people have, have plummeted. Um, so you have more programs and fewer actual businesses getting started. Um, so here is my joke, Carrie. You can respond to it. I used to say if you wanted a really effective entrepreneurship course, the professor would just say on day one, if you take this course, everyone here gets an F. Uh, and then whoever shows up in week two actually has the, the makings of an entrepreneur because they, they would accept. Because uh, <laughs> we're accepting, accepting failure. failure. Or, um, hey, I'm going to determine your grade via random dice rolls. <laughs> because everyone who's like, oh, I need an A, I need an A, will will jet. Um, and the, the folks who are wired that way, uh, you know, might, might not uh, actually want to go through the um, the trials and tribulations of, of starting a business. So how did you all go about uh, training aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, you know, this is such a fascinating question, right? Because um, the, it wasn't even, entrepreneurship was not even an academic subject uh, 35, 40 years ago. It was considered to be something that either you were born with and you went off and did, uh, or, or it was something that you had a business plan and you, you know, you were more of a, um, sort of an engineer and you, you, you prepared business plan. There used to be business plan competitions where people would look at it. Um, what we did at Babson was very different, which was we threw everyone in off the deep end, uh, immediately in their first year. And one, one class that everyone had to take was to start a, uh, start a business, and they formed teams, and they thought about different ideas, and they voted on the ideas, and the bad ideas were washed out. And over the course of the, the year, they built a business, uh, literally built it, got all the permits they needed to. They had some seed funding that was given to them by the college, not a lot, but some. And, and then by the end of the year, they had to either give their profits to a nonprofit uh, or pay back the seed funding and give the profits away, or if they just washed out, well, that's the way it is. But they weren't graded, as you mentioned, they weren't graded on whether they made money at the end of the time. They were graded on did they learn from the process? Did they learn how to put together a team? Did they figure out you know, how to manage cash flow? Did they figure out how to just say, this is a bad idea, we need to start over, we need to pivot and go do something else? You know, so if they learned and they could stand up at the end and say, boy, I failed miserably, and this is how I failed and why, then that person would get an A. Okay, okay. This raises so many questions that I must know the answer to. <laughs> so first, <laughs> what year are they when they take this course? Second- They're 18 years so they're, old. So it's a freshman year course, which is awesome. Yes. Second, yes. how are the teams yes. arranged and how many uh, students are, in, uh, are on each team? Some, some of these teams are up to maybe 15 people, but others uh, end up being quite small because uh, there's, there are moments when people can defect from one team and go to another team if they think that they aren't getting along or if they get fired. But how are they uh, initially arranged? Is it a bunch of people get together and say, okay, we're a team? Or is it I grab you and say, hey, guys, you're, you're a team? Like, how does that work? I, I believe that they actually have to form their own teams around. They usually form teams around the ideas that inspire them. So, so the first part is gener idea generation, and, and so then, then they sort of gather around like, oh, yeah, I believe this idea can work. I'd like to work on that. And the, the third thing is, and the sums are probably very modest, um, but how much was it and was it assigned per student? So if I had a 10-person team, we got, uh, you know, 10, 10x 
Yeah, I, I, I'm afraid I, I've lost track over the last few years of how much money it is, but it's, it's fewer than a couple thousand dollars. I can, I can say that. Um, so, but is, is that on a per head basis, or so if I get more students, do we get more money? <laughs> I, I think it's per team, as I recall, it's per team. I, I don't know. I, I need to get a professor on here to, uh, to answer some of these questions. But, um, but it's enough money so that they can, you know, do something. They can start. Um, you know, and and then you know they they hopefully make a, make a little bit of money o- over time. I love that so much on so many levels. And, and one of the, my frustrations with a lot of these things is they don't make it real. If you put even a very very small amount of money, it becomes real. Uh, and so I I love the fact that you're actually doing that and trusting them and treating them like adults. Because one of the things I heard from some young people who take an entrepreneurship class is that it actually seems more daunting after you learn about, oh, there's, you know, that like making a business plan. I mean, the fact is, X years ago, no one made a business plan. They just uh, freaking started selling whatever the heck they were selling, you know, it was whether it was cakes or flowers or singing telegrams or whatever it was. Like, no one was coming up with the plan. So, uh, so the, the fact that it's real and there's real money involved and there are real relationships at stake. Uh, it is awesome. Well, I think it's also important because people often think of entrepreneurs as these single individuals who go out and do it all alone. But of course, that's never true. You have to build a team around you. And so the notion that that team dynamic and the fact that you can't really do anything alone, uh, you really do need support of one way or another, is, is a good lesson to learn right up front. And one of the, some of the research that was done at Babson that I thought was fascinating was that three t- three-person teams were most likely to what? succeed. That's the greatest freaking data point I've ever heard. Isn't that great? And then, and then more than three was like less likely to succeed, but like three people apparently. Yeah, more chefs like- in the kitchen. No one has any real responsibility. You're like, yeah, fuck it. That person's annoying. <laughs> and so I'm going to check out. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Carrie, I'm I love entrepreneurship dearly. 
Um, I love entrepreneurship, one, because like you said, it's, it's job creating, uh, and, and, um, but also it's self-actualizing. It, it's a, if you tell someone, look, you have to go build it, you have to solve a problem you care about, that's just a very different process and a different set of uh, people that result than, hey, your goal is to get this badge, and then if you get that badge, then you'll get, in, you'll get into this org, and then they'll reward you a lot, and then, you, you know, it's, it's just a different mindset. I spent six and a half years uh, training young entrepreneurs. I'm still involved with a number of startups today. Um, and so I, I love the fact that you also were a part of cultivating that in the next generation. And like you said, it's not necessarily that you're going to go out and start a company. Uh, you know, I mean, you can join a firm in various ways. I did write a book on this subject uh, called Smart People Should Build Things <laughs> about entrepreneurship um, uh, back in my Venture for America days. Um, I don't know if you'd, you'd ever, you probably wouldn't have. I mean, there are a lot of entrepreneurship books out there, but, but that, that was about my time training entrepreneurs. No, but I'm going to read it now. I'm clearly going to go, go get it now. So I, I, I think that one of the most interesting things about, you know, watching these kids build things is that they are so proud of their efforts and, and so invested. And when we talk about young people today and, and many of the, you know, the, the challenges facing them, so often they feel out of control. They feel depressed. They feel that, you know, they yes. feel not optimistic about the world around them. And in so many ways, entrepreneurship and really just the the entrepreneurial mindset, you don't have to be starting a company, but but having that mindset that I have control of my life, yes. I'm going to do things that are going to make the world a better place. I'm going to gather with a few friends and make the changes that I can make. That can really, I, I didn't see the same uh, issues that, that I see in, in young people in America in general, so much at, at, at Babson because they were empowered. They, they really felt that they could make a change, they could, they could do something with their lives, and, and that they weren't just subject to all of these really huge trends, whether it's you know, climate change or, or whether it's just the country AI that we and live automation. in and the political climate, AI, all of these things that just feel overwhelming to people right now. Um, the idea that you can be engaged in something that is going to try to at least control your world and maybe have an impact on the broader world is a is a very comforting and and empowering feeling for young people. You know what I find to be the antidote for anxiety and depression uh, is action and agency. Uh, it's this locus of control is what we used to call it at Venture for America, but it's look like you control your own certainly your own state of mind. Well, you know, you can't totally control that, but you can influence that. <laughs> you can control your own behavior. You can take action. One of the reasons why I enjoy what we're doing with Forward so much is I only feel better about a problem if I'm doing something about it. And if you don't do anything about it, then the problem can really, really plague you. <laughs> That's right. And, and I think that entrepreneurship also teaches you to take reasonable risks, Right. People often think of entrepreneurs as big risk takers, and but they aren't. They, they they try to measure like what's a risk I can afford to take, and and invest in that. But by that incremental risk taking, you really become more brave and more wise about what what the risk really entails. And that's a, a lot of the concerns that people have today are around this notion that they they can't take risks because the the outside forces are so strong. And when starting starting a new party, right? It's a big risk. And and a lot of people say to me, "Oh, what you know, like what are you thinking? It's not. It's going to take twenty years. You have to start somewhere, 
and you have to take a risk. It's not that big of a risk. It's a bigger risk doing nothing. I hope Forward becomes the party of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship and building and agency and giving us back control of our own futures. But I, I couldn't agree more with the, the sentiment you just expressed that most of the risks people are talking about are phantom risks. <laughs> this is something that drives me nuts that there are so many people that's like, oh, can't do this, can't do that. It's like, wait a minute. There's a bigger risk of us sitting around and waiting for uh, the bad things to overtake us. Uh, you're, you know, that's, that's a, or when I was young and I started my first company, that totally flopped, by the way. Um, I thought that the risk was looking in the mirror 30 years later and not having done anything. Um, which, by the way, <laughs> you know, I was like, well, that's a risk I could control. Like, I, I could, uh, you know, I can at least take a few shots at something. Um, and when I was recruiting for Venture for America, I told my wife this story the other day, and she thought it was really funny. What I said to a bunch of 22-year-olds, I said, look, things might not always work out for you if you head down this entrepreneurial path. But at least you'll be able to remember what year it was. Like, at least you'll be able to remember what the heck you were doing. <laughs> and, and that gave Evelyn a real laugh. But it, it's, to me, really, I think people tend to very much overweight certain risks, to your point, and then underweight others. When I was working at the Center for Advancing the American Dream, I got to meet a lot of entrepreneurs who had come here from other countries and had, had specifically chosen to start their, their firms and their ventures here in the U.S., even though they were from Europe or Russia or Africa or South, South America, where, you know, all over the world. But they, they felt that the environment here was more conducive to um, success and, and starting new ventures. And part of that was that we believe in uh, forgiveness and new starts you know, new beginnings for people. So failure isn't this permanent state of affairs. Like, you know, that's the guy who started a business once. Oh, well, you know, it failed and he's a failure forever. It's more like you can be proud of the fact that you tried to do something, whether it failed or succeeded, you can be proud of it. I'm proud of running for office for however many times I did. And I failed way more times than I succeeded. So I, you know, I, I think that we in America have, you know, we take it for granted that we have this notion of uh, allowing people to begin again and, and have infinite numbers of, of lives and, and careers and expressions. Oh, yeah, I think I'm on my fourth career, Carrie. <laughs> if, I to, if I had to and you're catalog young. it. You're young. Um, yeah. But uh, I, yeah. I think there is something very important about the immigrant experience. Uh, I'm the child of immigrants myself. And you know, I, my parents worked very hard. Uh, and we, we felt appreciative of the opportunities here uh, in the U.S. Uh, and when people come from other parts of the world, I think they have a real appreciation for what the U.S. provides. Um, meanwhile, a lot of young people are, feel like, hey, the American dream is not real for me or it's dead. Uh, so you spent several years trying to combat that at the brand new Center for the Advancement of the American Dream. What did you find? Um, so actually, I'll, do, I'll give a little bit of backdrop stuff. So when I ran for president, I would talk to people about the American dream. And as a numbers guy, I said, look, here to me is what the American dream is. We expect our kids to do better than we did. Or if you're a young person, you expect to be better off than your parents were. Now, do young people right now expect that? Most of them do not. And the numbers 
are that they're probably right not to because things are less affordable and less accessible. Uh, if you were born in the 60s, there was something like a 93% chance you're going to do better than your parents. By the time the 90s rolled around, it's down to a 50-50 shot because you can actually measure outcomes for that stuff, and it's declining. So there is some empirical reality behind young people saying, you know what, the American dream might not be there for me. Right now we have something of a national housing affordability crisis, in part because of our dysfunctional politics, I would suggest. So describe your work at the center, what you found, uh, what were the, the victories and challenges? Yeah, well, first of all, I wasn't trying to convince anyone to believe in it. I really wanted <laughs> to understand whether it existed, yes. you know, because the people who have experienced it believe in it deeply and it's it's unshakable because that's their that's their lived experience right they they worked hard they followed the rules they came maybe from another country where there was oppression or some you know financial crisis and they came to america and they made incredible sacrifices in some cases and and succeeded and so i think that well other people might say my experience has been very different i followed all the rules things went poorly for me or maybe the rules weren't made for me maybe the rules were actually made to exclude me and make sure that it was harder for me to succeed and i'm i'm just you know exhausted with trying and i don't think i'm going to do better than my parents and and i don't see the pathway forward so so there were these two paths that that you know that that you saw there very clearly and there wasn't a lot of understanding and and a lot of commonality to the experience that these two groups of people in america have and what's interesting is they they're not the the typical they might not even be the very rich and the very poor, um, it, it, there's, there's a whole center ground of people who believe very strongly in the American dream and they feel like they're on that path. But when we did focus groups, we would find, for example, that there are certain things that can knock people off the path to the American dream that really scare people. And some of those things are health crises. And I, I think access to health care in America is arguably one of the, the major things that, is, that are making people doubt the, um, the uh, ability and the, the certainty of a path to the American dream for themselves and their families. And so you mentioned housing as well, you know, housing costs and, and how that goes. So I think there are certain things that we can address through policy in, in America right now that will, will make people feel more comfortable that the promise of America is actually available to them. And in Massachusetts, when we did health care reform, uh, we've now gotten it to the point where somewhere between 98 and 99 percent of the people in Massachusetts have access to health care. It's not as affordable as, as it ought to be, but there is access to health care. And the state as a whole, if you look at the statistics over the last 15 years, that access to basic health care has made us a healthier state. In Massachusetts, there are you know far fewer uh, cardiac problems. There are far fewer you know people dying of cancer, etc. So, so I think these I think that these are really important things for us to think about. Like, what are those big obstacles to the American dream that we can start chipping away on to give people more hope? I love it, and I think that is what it would take because so the American dream has been very real for uh, me and my family. So so incredibly grateful. Um, but as a numbers person, I look up and say, you know what, let's try and address the, the basics here. By the way, your, your work in Massachusetts with uh, MIT ended up becoming something of a national model, I, <laughs> I, I, I believe. I mean, it was more or less the template for Obamacare. 
Yes, and and you know, I wish that uh, we had been able to work across the aisle uh, with the Obama administration to talk about how best to to formulate. Yeah, there were some pretty big problems with that design. Yeah, it's a very tough thing to parse out, um, and there are a lot of things that we still need to do. There, there, are, you know, sort of three aspects to providing healthcare. Obviously, there's quality and there's access, and there's cost. And so we had great quality of healthcare in Massachusetts already. Uh, we addressed the access, but we left office before we could really dig into how do you contain costs? How do you create the kind of transparency and pricing? And, and, the, uh, and how do you empower individuals to choose the, the most efficient and, and least uh, expensive option for themselves? So we, we still have work to do there. All right, check it out, Carrie. I'm going to run this by you. So, uh, so you, you've interacted more with healthcare than just about anyone. Uh, the costs do creep up, uh, just keep on creeping up. Uh, I want to say, last I checked, it was something like 17% of the economy and rising. Uh, and here's my general thesis. Let's see what you think. Hundreds of millions of Americans want better lives for their kids than themselves, and you and I are parents, so we want the same thing. We keep making the fundamentals of a middle-class life tougher and tougher to come by. Um, where you have healthcare, it just gets more and more onerously expensive because you have these uh, companies and institutions that their business model essentially is like, well, I'm going to increase my pricing by 5% this year because that's how I get make more money. <laughs> and I'm a publicly traded company. Um, so one of my jokes when I was running for president was, you know what no American has ever gotten a letter from their insurance company saying, uh, hey, great news, we're cheaper this year. <laughs> like, no, no, one's ever, no one's ever gotten that letter. Um, so you have a healthcare infrastructure that gets more and more costly. Uh, and then you have an educational path that gets more and more costly where the, the cost of a college degree. How much was it when you and I went to school-ish? Uh, I mean, you know. Well, when, 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 I, when I went to college, um, all in with uh, ha room, housing and, and food and, and college, my whole tuition bill was $15,000. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people hear that, they're shocked because t today it might be four times that. Well, yes, but, but my mother was the sole support of our, my family and she was a, a school teacher, an elementary school teacher in the public schools, and she was making $12,000 a year then. Yeah. So... You know, so so it was still an overwhelming cost, and I had to rely on grants and working, and we, you know, we sacrificed a lot and sold everything we could sell sell to to get me through college. Um, but for my in my case, it was the gateway to opportunity, and so it was worthwhile. And my mom invested in it with this blind faith that immigrants have around the value of education in America. She was a first-generation American. My grandmother came from Germany. They, she and her parents were, were fleeing uh, political oppression there, and she arrived in Ellis Island with like $4 with her mom. I recently found their record um, when I visited Ellis Island, and uh, it was just so moving to realize you know, how old she was. She was like nine years old and they had, you know, no money. And it was just, it's an incredible thing. And then to imagine that she was my grandmother and, and I've been able to do what I've been able to do here in America. The American dream isn't always immediate. It's, it's generational. And, and so we have to think about, you know, what are we, what opportunities are we providing for those next generations? What will my grandchildren be experiencing?
I was just on Ellis Island last month. Uh, so it was a profound experience. It's very powerful, isn't it? My, my, my family didn't come through there, but it was still very, very profound. Uh, lovely, lovely environment. So we have uh, healthcare costs going up, uh, higher education costs going up, housing costs going up. And so a lot of Americans are looking up saying, hey, wait a minute, my kids can't afford uh, a home. They can't afford this education. If they get sick, they're you know, going to go bankrupt. We're, we're kind of trying to avoid our healthcare system at all costs. And so um, Americans are getting uh, more and more saddened and frustrated that, the, that these things uh, are more and more oppressive seeming or out of their reach. And in my mind, uh, it is because of a dysfunctional political system that looks at this and shrugs and is like, well, you know, like, what's that? Healthcare uh, premiums are crazy expensive. I guess that's just uh, the new state of nature. It's a new natural law. And then um, colleges now, whatever it is, 65000 a year for, for some institutions, uh, even public institutions, I want to say, are, uh, you know, in the tens of thousands for sure. A new, also a new natural law, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can't build affordable housing. Like, I guess that's just the way the ball bounces. Um, and so Americans look up and, and like, they feel like they're subject to forces beyond their control, um, in part because our political system doesn't actually respond. I, I think that it's our responsibility to lay out alternatives. So in terms of the cost of higher education, for example, we need to speak about and respect uh, alternatives that do not include higher education as we currently imagine it. Not everyone needs a college degree to lead a fulfilling life or even a life that more than pays the yep. bills. And so the idea that we should be encouraging and expanding the number of people who are able to go into the trades yep. – um, trade unionists do very well, and they're very needed. And so why are we not, as, as people who have been involved with government, why isn't government making it easier for more people to go through high school and college and or just high school and, and graduate with access to the trades? Yeah. That seems like a very obvious thing. Um, there are a lot of technical uh, skills that can be given now through short courses, whether they're six months long or less. And, and there are a number of great courses that are being created by Meta and Google and IBM and others um, that can help you enter those uh, careers that maybe cost only a couple hundred dollars or less uh, in order to get that training. They could be done at community colleges. They could be done contemporaneously in your senior year in high school so that, again, you know, we could make it so that everyone would graduate with at least some skill that would allow them to go directly into the workforce and not take on the, the tens of thousands of dollars of debt that are dragging down young people and making it hard for them to buy houses, making it hard for them to have kids and to marry and all the things that they arguably want to do. So, so I think that we need to talk about those alternatives, to flesh out those alternatives for people. And also, by the way, um, online education can be incredibly less expensive and also high quality. I'm on the uh, board of something called Western Governors University. And each year at Western Governors, which is a competency-based university, only costs $7,000. And you can go as fast as you want and take as many courses as you want during each semester. And, and most people graduate in well fewer than four years. So you can get an entire college education, which is a very high quality, uh, for less than $30,000. And so 
I think that people need to start thinking about what are those real alternatives to the way that we've learned to live our lives. We don't have to continue doing the same thing. You know what AI is not going to automate? HVAC repair, window retrofitters. Uh, there, there are so many things that we're going to actually need people to do. Uh, and we're not making it easy enough for folks to go down those roads. We're stigmatizing it. It's bad for young men who aren't going to go to college in particular. Uh, I don't know what the gender ratio was at Babson, but now uh, three out of every five college students is a, a woman, which on one level is great, but then you know, like you, you have a lot of men who are falling behind in various ways. Carrie, we, we should put you in charge of something very big and important. I think that a lot of people listening to this would... would <laughs> Well, maybe that. building, helping you build the forward party. How about yeah, that? Yeah, no, it seems, seems big and important. Uh, so uh, so what are your uh, hopes for forward um, now that you're helping us steer this thing? For me, I'm looking at it as a 20-year project, something I want to be involved with for the rest of my life. Uh, it's something that we need to really build a solid foundation for. Uh, in order to transform American democracy in a way that it can be uh, responsive to everyone and, and so that everyone can have a home so that no one would be feeling, as I have throughout my entire career, that I didn't really fit here, I didn't really fit there, and therefore I was constantly having to operate on the fringes of, of, of our political party system. I would like to see a party where everyone is welcome, where it's constructive, where it isn't uh, a, a place where we, we're trying to leverage conflict for our own advantage, which is obviously what goes on now with our, our two-party system, yep. our, our duopoly, if you will. So those are the things that I'd like to see. And, and I'd love to be able to have serious talks about things like immigration, uh, that you know we need to solve this problem. We can't just continue to use it as a way to win elections. We need to talk about public service, I, you know, I would genuinely love to see national service be something that a majority of young people in America view as just part of growing up. I want the first question that people ask each other later in their 20s is like, oh, where did you do your national service and, and what did you do and what did you learn from that? So we need to find ways to knit the country back together again culturally. Uh, and I think that this party is a way of doing that. Leverage solutions, not conflict. Uh, build over the long term, though I think we're going to surprise a lot of people on what we can get done uh, in much, much uh, faster pace than the next 20 years. Carrie Healy, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for helping us lead this effort. And the best is yet to come. I really do want to put you in charge of something awesome. When I say, you know, like, I mean, feel like you could overhaul America's healthcare system, education system, just about any system we have and, and make it better. Thank you, Andrew. And thank you for getting the ball rolling on, on the forward party. And I'm really excited about what we can do in the coming year and beyond. Yeah, me too. 